Criminal Magic, Chapter 1. Sometimes, when you are dropped into the deep end, it doesn't matter if you know how to swim. Thursday, 2143, GMT-8. Two drapes his deceptively lean body against the bar as he offhandedly chats up the waitress. The banter is easy enough to let him concentrate on the data coming from the code tapper strapped to his leg. The simple mechanical characteristics of this little retro gadget he picked up from some scary Colombians make it easy to distinguish between simultaneous inputs. Technically, a clever interceptor could pick up the low-frequency transmissions that activate it, but he's betting that even if they did, it would take days to believe the possibility it's Morse code they're hearing. Too obvious. Too old. Target pips onto the grid. All things being equal, looks like the wind-up won't be long now. Outside, three loiters near a car, professing a serious interest in the foul cigarette she's smoking, and trying not to react to the lame club music filtering out from doors along the street. She's nervous about doing this early in the evening before foot traffic is wasted enough to miss details. Until a few days ago, she was with a group doing ecotage in the lower northwest and making the shift from deep woods isolation to traffic monitoring for a collective op induces a kind of speedy double vision that's threatening to dull her edge. Station's coordinator's voice says be ready to move, three bites her lip, and tells herself to calm the fuck down. One, a bit less than a block away, is posing as a panhandler and wondering what the hell he's doing here. The shit audio quality of the cuff on his ear annoys him as it spews scratchy updates and proximities that don't mean much of anything since he's not a key actor at this point. He works to relax into his role and starts by threatening to piss on a couple of football player-looking goons passing too close. Station's coordinator is working from a hoteling space at the airport's international terminal. She's ready to jet, two open tickets, both on the next available flight, one east, one west. The west leg on her own credit, just in case. If this turns out to be the score that blows this collective, she will evaporate, burn down every connection to this fictional identity like a string of unwanted bridges. Regardless of the outcome, dead ends, she is certain, are the signature of a job well done. She has augmented the rented online access in an unrecommended manner to make sure enough bandwidth is available to keep up with demand. Target is moving toward resolution. One has just had an altercation with Target's bodyguards. Keep checking. Thursday, 2148, GMT-8. Two doesn't look up when Target comes in. The barmaid's eyes flutter ever so slightly in mid-sentence, letting him know that something of interest has arrived. Target doesn't carry any signs of status. The slabs of beef coming through the door on either side of him take care of that, thank you very much. From this point, Two is relying on the integrity of the psych profile on Target. Gregarious, confident, flirtatious. If so, the next part of the gig is easy. Inside Two's head, ringing in the deliberate workspace tranquility of right now, the word boredom clangs a repetitive drone. How many times do we run this? How many snaps, crashes, twin takes, grifts, slams do we make before... before what? Well-developed filters drop from the ceiling of his mind, blocking the stream of dangerous self-distraction from the now. There's no time for that. Here, in this instant, there's room for nothing but the work at hand. Distraction is lethal. Self-indulgence is weakness. Two yawns, and the deep breath clears all remaining noise as he vice grips his attention on the moment. 
Thursday, 22.19, GMT-8. Station's coordinator feels queasy. She has all evening, mostly because of Two's bizarre refusal to wear even the minimum of modern comtech. That ancient shit he's insisted on gives her no feedback. She's pretty much blind now that Target's in the bar. That is cause for concern since this leaves her out of the fucking loop on the job she is supposed to be running. Coordinator has learned far too many life lessons in the area of staying in very personal control, and she will continue to feel vaguely nauseated until she's back in the saddle with Target under direct surveillance. Three is anxious. Maybe it's traffic noise. She repeats a mantra under her breath, then notices the litter of cigarette butts she's dropped on the ground outside the car door. Any observant person could tell she's been standing there for a while. Casually, she foot sweeps a few under the car, just as coordinator announces target likely in contact with two. One has repositioned just meters from the club entrance, very near three, but his line of sight is blocked by a concrete post. Partially visible, she appears, at least periodically, to be scuffing her feet at something. What the hell is she up to? I guess it doesn't matter. His role is to keep an eye on the street front and make sure nothing unexpected tries to make its way inside. No problem there. He slumps against the brick wall of a warehouse with just enough overhang to keep him from being hit by the first of the fat raindrops beginning to stain the cement walkway. Two is planted at center bar, knowing otherwise he'll be forgotten since the barmaid will be giving priority attention to any customer as obviously tippage endowed as Target. The place is sparsely populated. Target sidles up as his sidekicks, moving like twin bulls that don't give a shit about china shop merchandise, maneuver aggressively to occupy all the empty space. Two gets his first audio on Target, voice a little on the high side for his size but reasonably within norms. Flat accent, transnational, every nuance chipped away by years of coaching and practice. So far he plays to form. Hey, hi, what's popular with the locals? The barmaid slides a smirk, clearly expecting something a bit more impressive from so obvious a hitter. Apart from me, her tongue glides over the sheen of gold-foiled lips. Cold night, she muses. I'd say whiskey, with a beer. Before Target can say a word, two blows a sordid belch. Oi, sis, can I get another one of them? Mole ciders. Got the fuel rain in my bones. The muscle twins shift their attention to the dark-haired loser at the center of the bar, giving two the once-over before starting to glide his way. Target extends a crossing guard arm. Boys, friends here no problem, right, friend? You look like a regular. What do you recommend? His bright eyes play with the stranger. All of them know what could happen if Target doesn't like the answer. His dogs are on a leash, as short as his reach. Apart from what's on the dessert menu, Two says, glancing devilishly at the barmaid. He raises his near-empty glass. Far as I'm concerned, this side is the thing. Well-known cure for Portland depressions and trailblazer losing seasons. He winks and drains the last of his drink. Target leans across the bar. Give me what the man's having and put his next one on my tab. His arm falls, and the gunsels fade into the shadows at the end of the bar, where they can watch the door. Follow basketball, do you, friend? Two lets his head fall into a nod of agreement. Yeah, fan me, capital F, fan. The slur is slight, but suggests weakness. People who don't like ball, I've got no time for them. You got some interest in the game? The smaller man steps back and slides to within a couple of stools of where two sits hunched over the bar. Yeah, from time to time I take an interest in basketball. Some would say it's a compulsive interest. Now what's that mean? You gamble, or you can afford to lose. Maybe you got an interest in the wizards. That'd cover both ends. Two snorts at his own cleverness. 
things are moving right along. Thursday, 22.55, GMT minus 8. Half an hour later, Station 2 and Target are sitting elbow to elbow, tossing off shots and swearing at each other like they had shared a cradle. Target drains a drink and stands. Honey, he summons, set us up here, I gotta take a leak, I'm back in a minute. Before shoving away from the bar, he fishes a hundred dollar bill from his pocket and slides it down the counter. Consider this a down payment. He winks and moves off under the shadow of his heavies. Two feigns a cough, pops an adrenaline tab under his tongue, shakes his head, rises, and moves with the precise attention to balance of a practiced drunk toward the dance area to the right of the bar before he steps down onto a narrow flight of stairs. The stairwell is cramped, temperature rising past the comfort level of anything but the lightest clothing. He pauses at the top, affecting an interest in the musician's stage before moving down towards the bathroom. For a fraction of time, he is hidden from view there, shielded behind an antique London phone box, equipped with a wrecked flat screen that's jammed onto a landing of the stairway. He steps inside, jerks up his pant leg, rips the Morse comm from his calf, and drops it behind the folding door before moving on. At the base of the stair, the doorway to the bathroom is filled with the bulk of Target's bodyguards, both of whom positively ooze bad attitude. Two lurches into view, palms up, and offering a plaintive look. Oi, lads, you're not seriously going to make the general public wait, are you? I mean, I'm knocked off a few in here tonight, and I really got no stoke for the outdoors piss wall when it's raining, if it's all right. No dice, pal, offers the one with the Yogi Berra haircut. Go out in the rain if that's what you got to do. Maybe you should work on your bladder stamina or cut down on the swill, he snorts. You know what I'm saying? He shoots a mean grin toward his partner. Two offers a mooch mouth look as he reaches for his jacket pocket. He keeps a free palm raised to calm the bodyguards, whose hands have moved with preternatural speed toward their pockets, and two feels it's probably best not to get too familiar with the contents. He pulls out a couple of centurions rolled with Ben's portrait facing front and points them at the bathroom door. Seriously, boys, how about a little consideration? He grimaces as he pats his crotch. The little gent's got an urgent need. The heavies exchange a glance. The smirkier one snags the bills. All right, pal, here's the drill. Against the wall, legs spread, jacket off. Two obliges, spread-eagling face-first against the ancient cement foundation. There's a rough coolness as the exposed aggregate insinuates itself into the skin of his face. It has the smell of Midwestern basements. Solid, reassuring, the mystery of inert mass to consider as he waits for the frisking to end. The guards give him a going over one step shy of a body cavity search before stepping off. All right, guy mumbles the bald one. Don't take no longer than we think you should, huh? The contract between them does not need further spelling out. Two steps into the pisser and his drunken identity drops like a broken millstone. An intensely muscled body miraculously rises out of the feigned derelict slouch and resolves into the upright cable of someone able to do serious things on demand. Target is there, braced at the urinal like an old man, one hand head height on the wall. He swings his attention around to see who his men have let in. Oh, it's you! He offers, too, a sloppy grin. I got the claim on this one, man, but the shitter's free and clear. Two mumbles agreement and steps around Target. Passing behind the smaller man, he kicks a knee into the back of Target's legs and smoothly claps a hand over the face of the collapsing man. Chloroform on a table napkin. Nothing a pat-down would catch unless you were doing sniff tests on somebody's pockets. Target's squirming subsides. Two gives thanks that the body search hadn't taken longer, Chloroform evaporates quickly, and he'd soaked the napkin just before leaving the bar. Another minute, and it would have been bone dry.
Thursday, 22.56, GMT-8. In under 10 seconds, he leans target's limp form against the back wall of the urinal. One close look to make sure the man is fully down. Water flows over the slack face like a cascading garden fountain, so yes. Two can't help noticing that the unconscious stranger looks vaguely like a bishop in a tall porcelain hat. Stepping into the adjoining stall, he removes a vial with a brush cap from its hiding place behind the toilet tank. He inhales deeply before releasing the duct tape wrapping, snapping open the top and stepping up to the wooden exterior wall. With broad strokes, he brushes a sloppy rectangular pattern on the wall in two quick passes. Wherever the brush touches exposed wood, the wall begins to smoke. Nitric acid is wicked, one of the agents most favored for pulping paper back in the days before environmental protection, ecotage, and the introduction of hemp to timber country. Stepping back from the now-smoking slag of cellulose, he wraps the used duct tape around the cap, placing the bottle and all carefully in pocket. 25 seconds. That leaves 15 until Tweedledee and Tweedledum out there come busting through the door. Two bends down, slinging the unconscious target over his shoulders in a fireman's carry. In a single motion, he steps toward the wall and pushes at it with his foot. The acid has done its work and the shiplap sighting gives reluctantly. No more waiting now. He times a wicked kick to the downbeat of the music upstairs and steps over a collapsed section of smoking wall as it slags down onto the soaked pavement of the darkened alley beyond. At a dead run, two can make about 150 meters in 20 seconds with a 70 kilo pack. At just under two meters, his body is deceptively thin, but beneath the loose-fitting clothing lies a machine trained to perform under the most challenging circumstances. Now it's 10 seconds. The snatch is 300 meters away. He kicks it. In five and a half seconds, he reaches the corner of a low brick building on the opposite side of the lane. Rain begins falling in sheets. Rounding the corner of the structure, he stops abruptly and slips into a narrow passageway that slices between two brick walls. It's impossible to carry the body crossways, so he drops it on the ground, grabs the unconscious man's collar, and skids it along as he backs into the narrow divide. Three has been watching the time. She's increasingly nervous. It's her first time working with a collective, so it's hard to be sure who's really got the chops. Two, of course, she's heard of. He's a legend of sorts. Mr. Lo-Fi, no-tech, whatever. Nobody knows who the dude is, really, what he looks like. Nada. He's practically invisible. Some say that's actually true, that he is invisible, or he becomes so when he wants, and those that have worked with him just refer to him as answer. She has no idea who Coordinator is, the disembodied, sexless, quasi-female voice of a control freak in her earpiece, demanding to know exactly what she's doing, like, every five seconds. One, the driver, is a local, from what she understands. Portland has a small crew, but as wheelmen go, he's supposed to be the business. Doesn't matter. Time to fly. She stomps on her smoke and steps into the street. One strides across the street, meets her at the curb, and swings the car door open for her. She climbs in, checks her watch. Fifty seconds to the snap. Secure your harness. All the buckles get another check. Thursday, 22.58, GMT-8. Coordinator's clock clicks off segments. Time, she says into the comm. Three and one are on the horn. Go, she snaps. Snatch and go. It's a command. Two is out. Either he's on the street, or Target is not under control and there will be no delivery. She hates working with this guy. Morse code? Seriously? Christ fucking sake. The boy is living in the Stone Age. Coordinator sees herself as the model of efficiency. The next step is the next step, no matter what. She hears the snap of three and one's earpieces calling back one tone each. Message received. On the way. 
She slaps closed the palm control on her lap, stuffs it in her waistband, and steps over to disconnect the white noise generator she cranked up when she started using the short microwave transmitter. At the window, she peels the sheet of transmitter film from the glass, steps into the bathroom, stuffs the blonde wig and eyelash extensions into a pocket of her purse, places a pixie-cut hairpiece over her hairnet, wipes off her lipstick, and snugs the print-set latex finger guards up to her knuckles. One last look around before she opens the door, strides into the hallway, and wads up the momentary life of Marion Madsen, the woman in whose name this space was rented. Each step down the carpeted hall brings her closer to another identity, which she will borrow just long enough to get out of town. One wishes he liked perfume. There's not much he despises in life, can't generally afford to be that picky. Some perfumes are awful, but survivable. This shit here, though, the chemical warfare agent the surveillance chick is wearing, this gets a glaring exemption. Three has on about an ounce and a half of some egregious patchouli-smelling nastiness, and right now he would give a truckload of money to be five miles away from the source of that stench. But he is not, so he holds his breath on and off. Rain blasts the shrinking visibility down to nothing. He has the wipers on high as he swings around the corner and makes for the end of the alley a block and a half away from the bar. He checks the injector. Nitro boost, active red. Never want to go for the slick move and come up short. His pocket beeper buzzes angrily. Thirty seconds to the pick. Gliding down the slick black street, he gives a last little tug on his four-point restraint. Never hurts to be safe. Two comes up just short of a fence blocking the end of the gap. He breathes heavily, all sensors working full out. His mind has seen the wire even when his eyes could not. He stops just a tick to catch a nice deep breath. Turning his back, he boots the wall of the building behind him with a powerful snap of the heel. Nothing. Another sharp kick. This time the masonry yields, just a little. One more stiff boot, and a section of wall crumples inward. Out of time now. Ducking down and backing into the void, he disappears into the building's dark innards. He grabs Target's soaked shirt and gives the limp body a savage jerk. The unconscious form slops into the blacked-out warehouse, plopping down onto the floor like a sodden rag. Time is definitely up. Muffled by the rain, Two hears the shouts of men in the alley, twenty meters away. Eyes close as he looks for them within his mind. In the river that is time and space, he finds their panicked energy swimming, slowly, floating along near the surface. They radiate the edgy orange luminescence of fear. A fuck-up on this scale could have terminal implications for people in their line of work. Two gently casts a loop around the frantic swimmer's thoughts, envisioning one golden-colored strand after another, gently wrapping around them until they are completely cocooned, bound by countless rotating ellipses that look, in his vision, like protons and electrons circling the nucleus of an atom. He begins to spin the lazy ovoids, oscillating them with the tranquil focus of an eyes-closed hula-hooper or a child playing rock the cradle with a yo-yo. Tweedledum and Tweedledee run, plodding through the penetrating rain, shouting the client's name. Guns drawn, they move down the alley, as fast as men blinded by circumstance and fear of consequence can. Out of the blackened mist, a boggy friction of confusion pools around them, slowing their movements to a crawl. They feel as if they are running in concrete. Suffocating rain sucks all the light from the sky, absorbing even the ambient wattage emitted by the city. Slogging into the bleakness, the killers finally reach the point where the alley intersects the street. There's nothing there. What? What'd you say? Shouts Tweedledee. Nothing, I didn't say nothing. Jesus, where's the GPS lock? Give up. 
feeling defeat, knowing its nausea, whipped, lost. They face one another, each hoping his opposite will know what to do, where to go. Nothing is visible beyond the frontier of confusion. Failure is the only certainty either man can find a trace of in the face of the other. Two drags the body across the concrete floor of the warehouse. No thoughts about the weight, friction, or lack of illumination. Zero distractions now. One rule he has learned in his years of working with others is that trusting no one keeps you safe. Safe from the threat of betrayal and error that will inevitably attach itself to human actors. Now it's down to this. Two knows three and one are waiting for him less than a block away. Coordinator is on the way to who knows where, job over one way or another. If three strangers know where the snap point is, it's possible that others know as well. Trust no one. Even if a person seems solid, they may be compromised. Everyone fails. It's the most reliable fact. Operating from that truth, Two has spent four evenings casing the Lutheran Brothers Baking Company warehouse and setting up this sideways outlet. It's not exactly what his team members expect, but they get paid either way, so no muss, no fuss. He cranks open the back of an ancient bread truck and hauls the uncompromising weight of target into the truck's open aisle, propping it diagonally between empty racks. A distant voice natters fearful thoughts. He commands himself through the established order, slam the door closed, move to the front of the truck, pull the service whites from under the front seat, check the impulse to stop breathing, slow down, but don't think too much. Maintaining the lariats of confusion that encircle Tweedledee and Tweedledum is growing tiresome. Sixty seconds over now. The two thugs are doubling back, but going against the current is hard work. They struggle to make sense of each labored crawl stroke. Two starts the bread truck and drives across the service bay. He stops just long enough to dismount and haul on the chain that opens the archaic roll-up door. At 70 seconds past the scheduled snap, two rolls onto the street in front of Lutheran Brothers. He turns east toward the Fremont Bridge. Half a kilometer passes before he reels in the last golden circle of confusion and turns his full attention to driving. Six hours to turn over, and tired as a motherfucker. Thursday, 2301, GMT minus eight. One backs to a stop just short of the pickup site and idles, keeping a sharp eye on the mirror. Time is moving, now 60 seconds over, which means either two is late, not likely from what he's heard about the guy, or there will be no delivery, in which case it's best not to think about where that dude might be just now. An ancient bread truck rumbles across the mouth of the alley south of Lutheran Brothers. Fuck it, he mumbles. I don't like the feel of this shit. Fifteen ticks and we are gone. Three shrugs in agreement. Then, over the low rumble of the idling engine, they hear muffled shouts. Two silhouettes appear in the rear view. Even in the rain, one can see imposing firearms drawn and pointed in their general direction. All his doubts evaporate. It's blown. He drops the clutch. Fishtailing out of the alleyway, the rig swings madly onto the street. One jerks the nitro lever. The kick is bloody-nosed wicked, snapping passengers' heads back on the way to 110 kph in two seconds. With the first rush over, they're flying at about 170. It's a straight shot for another kilometer, which is a good thing. Turning on slick streets at this speed would be suicidal. For a few breathtaking, adrenal-squeezing seconds, the getaway car is little more than a jet-propelled carnival ride. As they are ripping toward the first intersection that could provide an avert option, the engine shudders and seizes. Digital readouts pop and sizzle. Power steering evaporates. Brake servos. Gone. Instantly underpowered, the rig's momentum swings it into a vicious, inertial spin. 
One's teeth clench as he hauls down on the steering wheel, hoping through sheer force of will to bully a ton of steel in the direction of an empty lot looming ahead on the left. Brace! He shouts to no one in particular. They smash bounce over the curb, trailing a rooster tail of sparks as the vehicle skids across a narrow spit of asphalt lot. Tires peel, rims shred, as pieces of undercarriage shed like unseasonable fur. Finally, the left front quarter panel punches into a heap of construction rubble, bringing the wreck and its passengers to an abrupt halt. As the airbags shrink, one and three realize they are relatively intact. One gives himself a quick check, then looks over at three, who has turned a light shade of green. You okay? Pulse gun, she croaks. What? Fucking pulse gun, she squeaks. EMP, check your gauges, your electronics. One pulls the finger-shaped cell from his pocket, checks the power, fried. Dash readouts thrashed. He stuffs the phone into an outer pocket. From a fucking kilometer? Well, we're screwed for rides, and I'd be surprised if anybody packing a pulse gun is going to stop at that. Let's jump off this shitbox and vacate the premises. Yeah, well, thanks for the ride. Three smirks. She snaps free, opens the door, and scrambles out. One gives the car a quick once over. Goddamn electronic ignitions. He spits on the ground, realizing he's bitten the piss out of his lip. He draws a dark object from his pocket, raises it to his mouth, and pulls his hand away, revealing a pin swinging in his teeth. He blows it out and tosses the grenade into the car. Five seconds to sunshine, sister. See ya. Sprinting off towards downtown, he leaves three alone and wondering about her options. Time is short, and she decides that, what with things as they are, pretty much any choice is a bad one. One last amazed looked at the scene before she jets toward the river, reaching the shelter of an overpass piling just in time to avoid the light and pressure from the explosion. For a moment, the burning bulb of phosphorus casts a fevered, brilliant shake of light over the neighborhood. It is, she thinks, an illumination whose character perfectly reflects the pungent, palsied, nervous energy of the bare escape that lingers in the air. Thursday, 2301, GMT minus 8. As she stepped out of the hoteling space, station's coordinator set the GPS in her cell to vibrate alert and keep track of the ongoing status that way, literally feeling the updates on 1 and 3. She is in line to collect her boarding pass on the next flight when the GPS goes disturbingly silent. One drop-off at a given point is certainly a possibility, but to lose both signals simultaneously, that's a sure sign of trouble. She steps out of the line and walks to a more secluded area, checking her cell on Quantum Encrypt. No answer. Zero signal at all, in fact, from either station. Confirmation that something has gone seriously sideways. Even the heavies detail assigned to Target wouldn't think to scramble both phones if they'd hit the other collective members. Coordinator suspects they have gotten away, possibly, but that sideways something that happened back there will now be hot on all their asses. She strips the phone of its battery, wipes down the case, and drops it under the baggage scale. Suddenly, any flight seems like a spectacularly bad idea. She curses under her breath, suspecting that that cheese dick answer, wherever the fuck he is, must be involved. That is, if he's not dead already. Answer my ass, she grumbles. Now there's an erroneous nickname. One question after another sticks to the sky, and he has the balls to call himself Answer. She fishes the smart cards she's been kiting out of her bag and drops them into the next garbage bin she passes. Stick with the old plan and go down with the old thinking. Time to get flexible. She breathes deep. Hole up and see what develops. Coordinator strolls out of the terminal, past the heavy MRI security, and hails a jump cab on its way back to where she's come from. Thursday, 
2312 GMT minus 8. The interstate heading out of Portland toward the Columbia River Gorge and the burnished wheat country of eastern Oregon is a sophisticated, modern roadway, complete with maglev commuter train and all the usual AI traffic controls. Only a very few old-school vehicles that actually require driver attention are on the roadway. No surprise, then, that the ancient bread truck sporting the Lutheran Brothers Baking Company insignia might come as something of a shock to the auto drivers whizzing by on their way to who knows where. Of course, the age of the truck is central to Answer's choice of escape method. Even with the narrow brief he had on target, it seemed prudent to assume his bodyguards would have access to the latest in handheld weaponry. Mechanical ignitions on pre-1980s cars and trucks are impervious to electromagnetic pulses, although their little toy did manage to fry everything even vaguely modern in the truck, including an ancient iPod the regular driver had stashed under the dash. No entertainment on this journey. Answer hums as he swings the truck towards the exit lane, preparing to shrink the time he spends on this rapid but very high-visibility roadway. A few miles northeast of the Portland International, there's a community airstrip called Troutdale. Since the advent of personal VTOL, it's pretty much abandoned. He has constructed his first way station there in an out-of-service repair terminal. Time to ditch the truck and get a few answers for himself. For one, where Target is supposed to be delivered. Answer exits the interstate and heads north on an overpass toward the airfield. The asphalt is suddenly of a much lower quality, and traffic dies off to absolutely zero. He bounces the rig around the runway perimeter, just checking the scene, before easing back along the oval access road to the north of the old control tower. Answer kills the lights and engine as he approaches a decrepit shed adjoining the defunct terminal. He rolls the truck up to the carcass of an early Lear, a real museum piece, and jams it neatly under a wing, concealing all but the rear gate of the old slogger from easy view. He steps down and moves quickly to the back, opening the service doors and once again hefting Target's unconscious body onto his shoulders. Jesus, I believe this boy's actually gained weight. He lugs the inert form through swinging doors to a security portal equipped with a shiny new deadbolt. He fishes a key out of his pocket and lets himself into the abandoned building. Once inside, he props Target in a corner, secures the door, and takes a seat on the floor in the center of the room. Secure for the moment, freed from distractions, Answer collects the strands of his consciousness, drawing down his energy by silently intoning a long-practiced mantra. He seeks to relax his body and mind into a state resembling a waking dream. Here he can gain respite in a way that refreshes with the quality of deep sleep, but allows the spirit to remain watchful. Humming in a low tone, the distant interstate mixes with the pulse and roll of the nearby river in a lulling ululation as answer gradually releases the anxiety-drenched moment, drifting toward recollections of more pleasant times and surroundings than those presently available. Surrounded by comforting darkness, he luxuriates in the safe anonymity temporarily afforded by this obscure hideout and drops into the energizing shelter of an altered state.
We will be back next week with Chapter 2 of Criminal Magic. Please join us, and if you like what you hear, leave a review and tell your friends about this podcast.